Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Evan Hayfully, professor of history at Texas A&M University and author of Accidental Pluralism, America and the Religious Politics of English Expansion, published by Chicago University Press in April 2021. Evan, welcome, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you about this new book, Accidental Pluralism. But first, before uh, before we get into the book, I wonder if you would be willing to share with us a little bit about yourself, about your career and your research interests. Well, this book, it dates back to my uh, dissertation in some ways, which I did at Princeton University um, uh, back in the 90s when I got very interested in the question of explaining the origins of religious diversity uh, in America, um, especially in the middle colonies, uh, which don't figure in this book. Um, and that uh, dissertation, um, uh, once I finished the dissertation, I realized almost immediately that it wasn't going to work as just one book. I remember talking to some senior colleagues and they just wanted everything in one book, but I had stumbled on a much bigger, more complicated story. And I think in the end, it's basically going to be at least, it's going to be three books. Uh, the one already came out. Um, that was my book on uh, New Netherland and the origins of American uh, religious liberty, which is about the story of New Netherland, the Dutch New Netherland colony, and sort of a similar account of the religious politics of Dutch colonial expansion because it was very different from what the English did. Uh, and um, and it's on the territory that had been New Netherland that the middle colonies are created after um, 1664. So I had to do a kind of prehistory, <clears throat> and I just couldn't figure out how to fit it into the same story as as the English story. And part of that also is I was trained as a colonial Americanist, and there's a certain very kind of 
artificial way of approaching colonial, you know, early American history that we get trained in, uh, which kind of leaves Europe off, you know, to the side as a kind of intermittent influence. But what I was finding is that you couldn't understand what was happening, what the Europeans were doing, especially in the 17th century, uh, without also situating things very closely within the contemporary European context. And so the Dutch context being very different from the English context, I realized it had to be a separate book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then also to think about um, the different colonies created by these nations and um, think a little more comparatively there. So that, that book about the Dutch also looks a little bit at the Brazil, Indonesia, all the other places where the Dutch were going overseas to kind of study how they were dealing with religion and especially issues of religious liberty. And um, and basically there's a general pattern, but there's sort of variants uh, within it, depending upon, um, you know, if you're in Indonesia or in, in North America or Brazil, for example, all very different religious climates. And so... Um, then um, uh, that kind of came out of the first half of my dissertation. The second half of the dissertation um, is about the Restoration Era, primarily about the uh, middle colonies. But um, <clears throat> you know, the ironic thing about the book we're talking now is it didn't exist before. And it basically, once I finally sat down to write about the um, the restoration era, I realized I needed a little bit of background. And Mm. so this book, you know, this 300 page book began as just a chapter, um, sort of an introductory chapter, just to kind of talk a little bit about Maryland and Rhode Island. Uh, But it just grew and grew and grew and exploded because I realized um, I I needed a kind of history that explained what was going on beforehand. And there's very good histories of specific cases like in Massachusetts or Maryland, but there isn't anything that fits all these things together. And so, you know, the book's called Accidental Pluralism, but the whole book, you know, which is part of the thesis of the book, but the whole book itself is kind of an accident. I hadn't planned to write it, but I found out (laughs) that I had to write this book in order to write the next book that I'm actually working on now, which is finally to talk about the one about the restoration period and, Mm. you know, the creation of places like New York and Pennsylvania, um, uh, which is where the big story about religious pluralism uh, happens. Uh, So it's been a long, you know, inadvertent kind of career and that's, you know, ironically enough, kind of part of the thesis of the book itself is that it was this long, unexpected, inadvertent process. I had not planned on uh, shaping things that way, but um, uh, but that's how it's been. I love that uh, you, you you wrote the book that you wanted to read um, because you needed to, yes. to to work on the next project. That's a that's a great way to approach a, a writing project. So so accidental pluralism is an interesting title. Um, and I, I found the book to be a little bit um, iconoclastic in a way. So there's there's a myth that goes something like this. Uh, from the very beginning of English settlements in the Americas, in what would eventually become the United States, religious freedom has always been the, one of the key ingredients, um, even if it wasn't always perfectly lived out. 
But your book unsettles some of that uh, founding mythology, doesn't it? No. What's the big idea behind accidental pluralism? The big idea is that none of this was supposed to happen, that um, the British colonies, just like the French or the Spanish or the Portuguese, were supposed to only have the one official established church of the home nation, the Church of England, as the church overseas. Um, That's obviously not how things work out. But to explain that, uh, there wasn't anything in America itself that could really account for this development. We have, you know, a lot of local histories, and especially for the early period, you know, there's a kind of story of seeds being planted, you know, in Rhode Island or that eventually mature. Um, but it's just really, you know, this, this like really teleological way of doing and thinking about colonial American history that kind of chops off the contemporary context, which is that they're, they're part of the English world and English politics and English religious struggles. And I had studied a little bit, um, you know, I had actually gone to Princeton um, uh, to study Native American history, early Native American history. And that remains one of my ongoing interests and projects. And I have a whole separate um, indigenous um, Iroquois Haudenosaunee kind of project that I'm also doing. Um, But while I was at Princeton, uh, you know, the mix of influences from my advisor, John Murren, and then I sat in on some classes with Peter Lake, who was then the early modern English historian, and realized there was a bigger story about how you could fit together the stuff that I was learning from John Murren about colonial America and from Peter Lake about English religious politics. And it really helped explain why you get such a um, mess uh, of different options here in America. And so I've had to, you know, a big part of the career is kind of becoming more of an early modern European historian and immersing myself in that um, literature as well. And here, I think the story is, so it began originally to explain an American phenomena, but it's really also kind of a history of the religion in the British Empire, becomes the British Empire as well. And I think also should be thought of as part of early modern English history. Uh, In the end, I I decided on the term expansion in the title rather than colonization, because I really think that uh, conveys this uh, dynamic much better than colonization, where colonization just sort of suggests people going out there and planting a seed. Uh, And that's how we've always thought about it. But um, again, having been trained and taught a lot of American history, you know, we think of, we talk about American expansion west, across the mountains and the Mississippi and so forth. But what if we think of English history now? You know, obviously the Atlantic Ocean is quite mm-hmm. big, but in the 17th century, you know, you get on a boat and it could be a lot easier to sail over to America than to hike up to the highlands mm-hmm. or something, you know, just depending on how, it, in experiential terms, it wasn't that far away. Um, and then you can start thinking about, well, how do these people live? You know, how was what happening there incorporated into what's happening, um, into England at the time. And just briefly, um, uh, and this 
is where the work on the Dutch and just thinking a little more yeah. comparatively about um, the other European empires, the English Civil War and Revolution of the 40s and 50s is a huge is it really is the thing I think that makes the British Empire so different from its European uh, competitors because it completely you know it happens the, the the Spanish the French the Dutch they all had their religious and political struggles but they've pretty much all been resolved into a stable system by the time they start planting permanent colonies. Whereas the English, they had several decades of colonization, you know, Virginia, the Caribbean, New England were already going operations uh, when the whole system suddenly broke down in the in the Civil War and Revolution and got transformed politically, but especially religiously. And then so the colonies, rather than just being, an ex, you know, implantations of whatever the, the whatever the religious order back in. England was they, they actually become players in shaking the whole system up and you know and and, and ripping it apart and and mm -hmm. and and that really um, uh, creates this sort of irreparable damage that you know can't ever quite be put back in the box again although um, you know it gets much worse with the restoration that's a separate sort of story that the, the but that there's no inevitable trend um, it, it, there's no logic to it. It wasn't, um, you know, there's always one or two individuals like a Roger Williams who think about it, but he wasn't even trying to start up in his own colony initially. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where, but it's a, a long series of different kind of political transformations and religious contexts, you know, uh, at home and, uh, overseas just create this mess that um you know almost nobody is very happy with um because it goes against every conventional thinking about religious and political order um, that's shared by the colonists you know the majority of colonists as well as most uh people in england hmm. i'd like to talk a little bit about the time frame that this book covers it, it covers hmm. a really wide um chronology um, and, and maybe an unexpected chronology for many. Uh, this the the on the title right there on the on the cover of the book, you see 1497 to 1662. Well, right right from the start, it's clear that there's a whole chapter in the story of American religious history that occurs before the what's what's normally the once upon a time in your in your typical American history textbook. So, what what was happening in the hundred and ten years? before we get to Jamestown. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out because that was also um, another conclusion that I came to and how I want people to think about this book, which is not just about the consequences for American society, but is a story about English people and expansion overseas and ideas about expansion and, and ideas about the place of religion and maybe religious toleration in that process, um, whether or not it actually winds up producing a permanent colony like uh, like Massachusetts. And so I decided the way to do that is just to go to the beginning, you know, with uh, John Cabot and the first English encounter with um, uh, with the Americas, the, the New World. And 
start looking at what the English um, religious context is then, which is, of course, a Roman Catholic establishment. Um, and then also um, one of the things that becomes clear is that the English, you know, in the late medieval, early modern period, were probably one of the more repressive, you know, religiously repressive mm. um, societies. And that um, started getting me thinking differently about this whole dynamic of how religious pluralism could emerge in the colonies when actually for much of the time, the authorities back in England, even before the Reformation, were doing everything they could to repress that. But of course, in the 16th century, there is the Reformation, which is the big um, change that happens. And so the colon, you know, exploration and colonization and thinking about uh, um, English society over setting up English societies overseas precedes the Reformation, continues through the Reformation and goes on, you know, up through. Um, well, now we have Anthony Milton's book on the Second Reformation, which is basically the the last part of my my book, and I th I think it fits in quite well because. Throughout this period, there are different efforts to reform and challenge and change um, the religion of the English people. And what this book does is trace out those consequences or, or the, the thinking about those consequences um, uh, for the overseas uh, settlements. And so it was always a bit of a struggle while I was writing it and operating under the guise of being a early American historian, because like you said, there is, you know, Roanoke and there's a few other things that go on in, there's a number of attempts to set up colonies in the 16th century, but nothing sticks. Yeah. And, you know, the Americanist perspective is like, well, if it's not here and it's not, you know, <laughs> actually producing the future state of North Carolina or whatever, then it doesn't really count as our history. But all of the, the religious changes and the struggles and the development of different um, uh, um, uh, positions within the English world, the survival of Roman Catholicism in England and Ireland, of course, those all are absolutely central to what happens in America and what's possible for America. And so I felt it was vital to, to sketch that out, as well as situating you know, the colonial efforts that are made then within this bigger process, um, mostly to test the idea of whether or not the overseas colonies were seen as a way to deal with religious problems by just, you know, exporting religious toleration and exporting religious dissenters, which is, you know, sort of a common view that many people have, but that's not what it was. It might look like that in, you know, in retrospect, but that's not how it was at the time. That that's right. There's this theme throughout the book that um, that the the geographic distance between the the kind of rapidly changing religious context in England um, and these colonies across uh, the Atlantic, they they can't quite. They don't always keep up uh, with the same pace of change that's happening. So they almost become. It, it seems almost like a like a preservation of of a particular moment in the in the quickly changing religious landscape especially in in kind of the the early Stuart period so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
the religious policies of James and the the rapid changes that are happening and how that's hap- how that's being reflected um, in these American colonies. Yeah, well, a big part of the story, as you know, scholars of uh, English, the Church of England um, are showing, is that what the Church of England is keeps kind of shifting and evolving over time. So even when you have a place like Virginia, where it's been the Church of England from the beginning, exactly what that means in context and practice is That's not right. always the same thing. And, and a lot of it you know, goes back to um, James I and his, you know, his, I like the, you know, the idea of balance, the, the way he's trying to balance different factions within the church, Puritans and Arminians and others, and <clears throat> um, allowing for more religious diversity within the church um, uh, as part of his more, you know, tolerant approach, but it's a specific kind of tolerance that he's not really, you know, open to tolerating. Everybody just wants people who are primarily um, politically loyal, even if they're religiously kind of going off in somewhat different directions. And so that creates a kind of a slippery foundation even before you get, um, uh, which is through which the Plymouth colony, you know, most importantly Mm -hmm. managed to to kind of open some cracks that they're able to get through. Uh, Even though if James really knew it was going, like if, you know, if they had been totally honest about who they were and what they were doing, you know, they would not have been able to um, do what they did. And that I think is another important part of the story is that you couldn't just move to America and start a colony. You needed Royal permission. You needed a, a colonial charter. You needed, you know, some sort of grant of permission from the very top. Yeah. And so throughout the story of this book, there's that relationship between not just between what's happening overseas with what's happening at the center of English religious politics. And so the different monarchs, you know, the from, you know, from the Henrys through Elizabeth and James and Charles, that matters a lot um, because even though, you know, they're preserving the church, they're giving it different inflections and that allows for different kinds of people and ideas to infiltrate overseas, even under the theoretical guise of religious uniformity. So as we move in the book closer to the outbreak of the civil wars, you said, I'm going to quote you here. I thought this was just such a, um, a great line. You said it might be better to think of the Puritan colonies in the 1630s as the advanced beachheads of the English revolution of the 1640s. I found that to be such a a provocative and, um, and kind of generative insight. So I wonder if you could unpack a little bit, this idea of new England being more about the English present than the American future, I think is how you put it. Yes, that's that's after many years of thinking about it, it, the way that it makes most sense to me, because, again, thinking comparatively, you know, I've worked through worked in Atlantic history, too, about the European colonization of the Americas. New England is really the thing that makes, you know, what becomes the United States different from like Brazil or any any other of these overseas uh, European um, colonies that eventually become uh, American nations, uh, and it 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 
didn't happen before the 1630s and nothing like it really. Well, there's Pennsylvania with Quakers later on, which is a somewhat different story, but there's, um, it's a really weird moment in the history of colonization that a bunch of people who are normally, you know, you're kind of middling fuddy duddy, you know, deeply religious people who are not the kind of either poor servants or military adventurers or, you know, um, you know, uh, ambitious merchants who are the usual guys who are going over and setting up, uh, colonies that thousands of these people, men, women, children, uh, move over to, uh, new England. And again, we think of it as them escaping England and yes, they're getting much further away from, uh, Archbishop Laud and his, you know, enforcers. So they're not totally off the map. There are some efforts later in the 1630s to kind of start reeling them in. Um, but the New Englanders themselves are still their entire lives. And, you know, for generations afterwards, they still talk about Archbishop Laud, like they're obsessed with this English context yeah. that they came out of. So mentally, you know, physically, they might be a couple thousand miles away over this giant ocean, but mentally, they're still part of the same world. And then physically, as soon as things change back in England in the 1640s, thousands of them, you know, go back to England. Um, and so I, this is, this is, I think part of a way rather than escape from England, it's a way for them to figure out how they can shape English, you know, the English world in their own liking. And they couldn't do it in England, but by setting up this bastion overseas, um, they are able to play a kind of outsized, um, role in the story that otherwise, I think wouldn't, Mm. um, you know, would, would not have been there. Well, no, no story of, uh, English religious pluralism can avoid Oliver Cromwell and the, the new model army, which as you've even started to allude to many of the, the new Englanders are coming back to be part of this, this, uh, uprising that is being led by parliament or you highlight how the religious connection between New England Congregationalists and Cromwell and English independence leads to an ironic different set of outcomes. But the way that New England is expressing uh, religious freedom and Cromwell is expressing religious freedom, it looks very different. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's good. And I guess this kind of gets us at one of the things you said earlier about how in some ways what the English in America are doing, you know, they come over at a specific moment in time and that kind of mm-hmm. is the the context and framework that they're mostly operating in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, in England, especially in the 1640s and fifties, things start changing a lot, really, really fast. And um, the new England world, I think is like, if, if Puritans had been able to <laughs> call the shots and set things up, you know, in, even in the 1620s, the way they wanted to, um, it would not have looked like what you get under Cromwell. You know, it's, yeah. it's the, 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 just the revolution, the war, that just all these things start happening that, um, uh, make independence go off in this very different directions. Cause the, the, the New Englanders are very much, you know, with the exception of Rhode Island and Roger Williams, but the majority of them are very much obsessed with religious 
uh, you know, uh, orthodoxy, unity, um, and 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 there is a way in which the Atlantic does act as a kind of filter. So they have a much more restricted, you know, as like Michael Winship and them have shown, the much more restricted vision of what a Puritan world should be than actual Puritans back in England because they can they can narrow things down and there's a you know there's smaller communities, um, but uh, uh, but they want that religious unity. They want that, you know, shared sense of, uh, ortho. They're not, they're not open to tolerating a diversity of opinions. You know, they, they make them run away to Rhode Island and then they even try and take over Rhode Island. Um, but here is where this, the net dynamic that you start seeing from that uh, period for, well, from before with, uh, with the early Stuarts is that the, it ends up being English people or the English authorities keep messing things up overseas because most of the colonists don't want to live in a world of religious pluralism. <clears throat> but because for a variety of reasons that change over time, people back in England end up favoring different groups that need a certain amount of pluralism, like Catholics under uh, Charles or independence with Cromwell. Uh, they support things like the creation of Rhode Island that force the colonists to to live in a world that's more religiously diverse than it would have been if they had had complete control over uh, over the situation. Um, uh, but at the same time, you're right that it works in the 1650s because Cromwell does see himself as embarked on basically the same adventure as the New Englanders and a shared cause. Um, and that's a really interesting moment in the history of the English empire, I think, where the colonies are not really colonies, you know, certainly from the New England perspective, but they're shared partners in empire. It's a more federal version of what's happening. And I end up kind of spending a fair amount of time on the 1650s because I think it's a really significant moment presenting a very alternative version of how this whole English world, you know, transatlantic world could have worked out. Well, I, I can only imagine that with the range that this book covers, uh, and we have, uh, we've barely even touched on, I think, some of the more interesting episodes of all that's going on in all of these Caribbean colonies and Bermuda and, and Providence. But um, you, you, you kept this to a, to a tight 300 pages. Um, but what in this work feels like it's unfinished or, or maybe how might you hope this work could inspire further work in the field? without wanting anyone to steal your, your the next book that you're already working towards. <laughs> well, I thought that the big accomplishment and the big, I mean, the big challenge and the big struggle for me, um, I was just figuring out how to tell this story as a single story and how mm -hmm. to put everything that's happening um, in Ireland, Scotland, the Caribbean, you know, New England on the same page. And so, you know, you, you mentioned the the, the 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 dates in the title, but also what I found when it came to writing the book um, is that the way that it the only way it really worked is to take a strictly a very chronological approach, mm -hmm. not a hundred percent because you know there's certain times where you got to talk more about what the Catholics are doing and more of you know within a, ch a particular chapter, but 
things change over time. And, you know, that's a big part of the argument. That's a big part of what's going on. But they're happening in the same in similar ways in different places. You know, so that thinking about, you know, a Jacobean phase um, uh, is really helpful. Even the first half of his reign versus the second half, uh, oh, yeah. that there's key differences to um uh, pay attention to and uh, think about whether you're looking at Ireland or, you know, or uh, Virginia. <clears throat> and um, so I, so the real, uh, it was a, but because the way this history gets written is so regionally divided, you know, as Irish history or English history or Caribbean history or New England history, um, trying to synchronize the, all those histories was a big part of the challenge. And so I, I think of this book, not just as, you know, offering this argument and the interpretation of what was going on, but as kind of providing a setting that will help people in the future think about this world, the colonies and Europe as a, as a unified shared experience. Um, and, uh, and that I've given some signposts for how we can think about that. And so there's a number of individual cases and there's a number of themes, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the rise of congregationalism, I think, you know, which needs to be thought of in this transatlantic way. And, you know, what I, I couldn't do that. There's only so much I could do, but I've given people signs of, look, it's in New England. It's, you know, it's in Europe, but it's also in these Caribbean islands. You can see bits of it in Virginia. So there's just like a lot of crumbs <laughs> there in this book that I think someone could go into and build their own sandwich or whatever out of you know they build their own meal <laughs> um from this so that's kind of part of what yeah there's only so much you can do and my focus was you know just interpretively and narratively was on the story of religious tolerance and diversity how that happens but there's a lot of other themes that are there and the sources that are there and um so i i i would hope that i've you know I've helped provide people a foundation on which they can build a whole series of all other kinds of stories that also move easily back and forth around this world in a way that, you know, it took me a lot of thinking and just to figure out how to, how to do that. But I think now that I've done that, it, it all starts to fit together and make a lot more sense than before hmm. for me and hopefully everybody else who reads the book. Well, well, thank you so much for that. I mean, you've been so generous with uh, with your time today. Now, before we let you go, you've already mentioned a little bit about your uh, how this fits into a, a larger set of future work. But any any previews of what we can expect from you? Yes. Well, I'm yeah, I'm I'm happily on leave at the moment, where I am finally able to turn my attention to the book that was the book I was supposed to have written uh, when I was ended up writing this book, which is about the restoration period and the religious politics and toleration expansion in that period, which are very different from this period. And I think that's one of the things I've seen thinking about religion and the British empire, you know, from the 15th through the late 18th, 19th centuries is that it, it's, it's not just one story. And so this story of accidental pluralism does I think nicely encapsulate the story up until 1662 when the modern, you know, sort of constitutional foundation of the church of England or Anglicanism is established. 
But then it's a very, because this whole story is basically, it's kind of a history of the Church of England and, you know, and how mm-hmm. that does or does not hold together. But then after that, um, you do have distinct religious groups and churches that are separate, you know, uh, from that. And that's the restoration period is how and why are those people allowed to get the kind of power and authority, especially Quakers, but not only um, in the overseas world. And so the Mm -hmm. working title I have for that book, because it is a much more deliberate process that makes sense again within the peculiar politics, religious politics of that time, is pluralism with a purpose. Mm. And thinking about how the creation of these colonies from New York and Pennsylvania to the Carolinas and the reworking of the Caribbean colonies and so forth fits within the new, the change situation back in, uh, in England. So that's the next, the next big book. Another one that kind of came out of it though, uh, that I had not thought of until I, finish this book, Accidental Pluralism, is I think we could use a book called something like When the Puritans Won, about the 1640s and 50s, you know, about the empire and not not the story of toleration I was focusing on, but what kind of world did they create religiously, politically, economically, imperially, when they were in charge, when they're not dissenters, when they were calling the shots? Because it was quite incredibly powerful and dynamic and visionary and ambitious. And, um, and that's a story that has yet to be told and as a unified story. Well, both of those um, sound like wonderful projects and I can't wait to get my hands on them and read all the work that you're, you're doing. Well, this has been a conversation with Dr. Evan Hayfully. The book is Accidental Pluralism. America and the Religious Politics of English Expansion, 1497 to 1662. You can get your copy now from the University of Chicago Press. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. And thanks so much to our listeners. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Did you know that the New Books Network Library has published over 12,000 episodes to date? Visit newbooksnetwork.com to browse our extensive library. Whatever subject, you're sure to find something that will interest you. If you like this episode or want to hear more like it, please get in touch. You'll find more info in the show notes. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.